0: Do people have the right to immigrate? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Chris Freeman. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Chris Freeman. Chris Freeman earned his PhD in philosophy from the University of Arizona. He's an associate professor of philosophy at the College of William & Mary. His research interests include democratic theory, distributive justice, and immigration. His work has appeared in many venues, such as the Journal of Ethics and Social Philosophy and the Oxford Handbook of Political Philosophy. He also blogs at bleedingheartlibertarians.com. Chris, thank you very much for being with us today on The Curious Task.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So Chris, as we were discussing before in each episode, we like to start off with a question and go wherever the discussion leads us. So I'll toss it right over to you. Do people have the right to immigrate?
1: Yes. There we can go. We can just stop right there. Perfect. Uh, Shortest episode. (laughs) It's done. Yeah, very efficient. Yeah, so I think they do. And my quick argument for that conclusion is that the sorts of activities involved in typical cases of migration are themselves perfectly legal. So they're the sorts of things that people are allowed to do without coercive government interference. So suppose, for example... Uh, I wanted to get in my car and drive to a store to apply for a job. I would be permitted to do this. It would be wrong for agents of the state to stop me from doing this. Maybe I even cross state lines. So maybe I am going from Virginia to West Virginia, still allowed to do that. It would be wrong for police to stop me and prevent me from applying for a job in West Virginia. If I wanted to buy a house in West Virginia, same argument. If I wanted to buy goods, from uh, people working in West Virginia, I'm completely within my rights to do that. Uh, And so I argue that there's no real moral difference between that kind of case where, say, I'm going from Virginia to West Virginia versus a case where I am going from Texas to Mexico. The sorts of things involved in migration. Are all perfectly permissible things for people to
0: do. So some people argue, like for instance, under the the um, from the perspective of freedom of association, that like let's say we would like to uh, exclude this person from our group or not hire this kind of person. Uh, they, they apply that the same way uh, to, let's say, border controls or immigration controls. In many of your essays, you say that it's just not a fair comparison. Maybe you'd like to go into that.
1: Right. So I think that you might understand freedom of association in different ways. So you might think, and and I suppose I'm inclined to this view myself, that what freedom of association entitles you to is the, is the right to associate with other people without government interference. So for example, and if that is the correct conception, I think that would actually speak rather uh, strongly in favor of open borders. So for example, if I uh, own a business in the United States and I freely choose to associate with people from another country who want to come work for me, it seems as though freedom of association would entitle me to interact with them in that way. So as long as we're uh, both voluntarily agreeing to the interaction, then it seems like I ought to be allowed to do that. So the the worry is that freedom of the the worry about freedom of association arguments against open borders is that they seem to imply that the state has the right to tell private citizens who they can and cannot interact with. So if anything, uh, the state telling me that, uh, for example, I can't bring in somebody from another country to come live in my house or join my religious congregation, it seems like that is a violation of freedom of association. So I don't think the freedom of the association gives the state the right to tell you who you can and Cannot associate
0: with. So the the difference really is that a group of people getting together and deciding that they don't want to associate with that group over there. Ultimately, these are individuals forming a group voluntarily, etc. But where when it comes to the state, which is obviously a different kind of institution, the game changes. This is ultimately accepting that the state has the right to tell you you who you can and cannot associate with.
1: That that's right. So one way of looking at it is it's a right of essentially non-interference. So as long as all the parties involved are agreeing to it. Uh, and there are no rights violations going on or anything like that. The state uh, shouldn't interfere with our decision to associate with each other.
0: Regardless of what I personally believe, I'm going to do my best to play the, sure. the devil's advocate as much as I can here because this, oh, yeah, this is a very no, sensitive did, yeah. topic for many right now. So there are some that say, "Well, well, well that's all fine and good. But uh, let's look at the effects of immigration, right? People say, okay, let's say thousands of people show up at the border and then come in, come in to, uh, to work and to, to quote, or be on the system as an example. There's a lot of things people throw out there. So when people might accept the freedom of association angle that you just put out there, they might then turn to the effects of immigration and how that could rapidly either change a culture and an economy
1: so so uh, i'll try to take them in order but let me know if i miss any miss miss any of those points because i think those are all important worries and it's important to address them okay. so one point is just even if we sort of uh, you know snapped our fingers and eliminated all immigration restrictions instantaneously i don't think it would be the case that tomorrow there would be millions and millions of people ready and willing to enter the united states just because Uh, legalizing immigration wouldn't thereby eliminate all of the transaction costs associated with migration. So it's very costly to move uh, independently of the law. So just because you get a better job offer in a different state uh, doesn't automatically mean you'll move. There are lots of other considerations
0: why you might not do that. So that's just one point. People don't teleport to borders. (laughs) They don't just show up, right?
1: Exactly. That's right. And and, and there are other costs associated with immigration. So you might have to leave family behind. You might have to leave your local community behind. You might have to leave uh, leave your religious congregation behind, all these things. So there are lots of reasons aside from immigration restrictions why people might not move across borders. That's just a a kind of minor point. And also, I I could say, if you're not persuaded by that, uh, I could meet you in the middle and say, let's take a gradualist approach to this. So if you really, truly have a well-founded worry that hundreds of millions of people will want to enter the United States tomorrow and that they would just overwhelm the system, like I said, I don't share that view. But if you have really solid reasons for believing that, we could always say, okay, well, one approach to addressing that problem would just be to slowly increase the number of uh, immigrants permitted into the country each year. So it doesn't have to be all at once. So that's just a basic preliminary point. Uh, so on the economic effects, I think there are a couple of things that people worry about. So one is the effects on uh, like social services in the welfare state. So they say, you know, immigrants will come in and they will start using, uh, you know, the United States healthcare system. They will start uh, using public schools and things like that and so this will add to the fiscal burden shouldered by American citizens or or, or something like that. Um, now, one point that I would make there is we have lots of freedom, so it could be the case that that's true. I actually don't think that's true. I don't think the data shows that that's actually the case, so it actually turns out that immigrants tend to be a net fiscal benefit. Uh, so like the They work, they pay taxes, et cetera, et cetera. They tend to consume less. So that's just the empirical point, but I'll set that to the side because uh, I'm a philosopher. I don't do empirical social science, but the the data does seem to suggest that that worry is not particularly well-founded. But here again, I'll say, suppose you don't buy the empirical argument. It's still the case that you might have the freedom to do things that can impose fiscal costs on third parties. And an example I give Uh, And if, uh, you know, to the libertarians and classical liberals listening, this should be uh, particularly pertinent. You might think that people have the right to use drugs. You might think that drug prohibition is unjust because it unjustly violates people's rights over their own body. Say, okay, but imagine somebody said, look, we can't end the drug war because this means you'll have people using drugs. This means you'll have people consuming more publicly provided healthcare services. And so the fiscal burden shouldered by taxpayers speaks against the legalization of drugs. Now, there might be a sense in which that's true. I mean, maybe that that is a reason not to legalize drugs. But to me, it's not a sufficiently compelling reason. If you think people have this very strong right over their bodies, my intuition is to say, yeah, that is going to trump worries about uh, fiscal costs. Uh, As for the the, uh, employment point, uh, a couple of notes. So one... Uh, immigrants and domestic workers are often not engaged in direct labor market competition. So the sorts of jobs that immigrants tend to be best suited for tend to be different than what a lot of domestic workers are well suited for. So just by way of example, uh, there are certain jobs that require uh, really good uh, knowledge of local customs and language and so on and so forth. Uh, as opposed to other sorts of industries that might not require those skills. And so it could be the case that your local bartender, for example, is just more likely to be a domestic worker because they have knowledge of local customs and things like that. And so to the extent that immigrants and domestic workers are not in direct competition with each other, there's not a real problem there. And in fact, immigration tends to work to the benefit of domestic citizens just for, for the same reason that having more workers in the economy is always a benefit because it makes things more, it makes, you know, the country more productive. Uh, it makes goods and services cheaper. And so for example, if you are, I don't know, an American, uh, I don't know, I guess you guys are in Canada, right? I keep using the American example because that's my, that's my, we're,
0: yeah, we're, we're good. We're good with the American examples. Yeah. We happen to be in Canada, but for sure, keep, keep going with them. We're good with that.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, so you're in America and let's say um, you're a bartender or something like that, Um, but there is a large influx of immigrants, and let's say, I don't know, they're working for Uber, but this drives down the price of an Uber, that's good for you. So you still have your job as a bartender and you get cheaper rides to work. So so that's a win. And in fact, the data that I've seen suggests that once again, immigration tends to work to the net economic benefit of domestics. Um, And part of that too is, Uh, people, you know, the way the the rhetoric uh, focuses on immigrants, quote unquote, stealing our jobs, it neglects the fact that immigrants also consume when they move. So it's not just that immigrants, quote unquote, take our jobs, even if that were true, uh, it's that they come here, they work, and they buy goods and services. And so this increases the demand for the labor of people who are just, you know, natural born citizens. Uh, But There are, I think, real economic costs. So the data that I've seen suggests that people who uh, are sort of domestic workers who don't have a high school diploma uh, tend to actually see their wages suffer as a result of immigration uh, because they do tend to be in direct competition with immigrants. So what do we say about that? Well, here's my suggestion. treat Uh, wage losses from immigration in the same way that we would treat wage losses in other cases. So suppose it turns out that, I don't know, uh, the the automated kiosks in McDonald's or, I don't know, Tim Hortons, that's that's my knowledge of Tim Hortons. Um, I don't know if you have automated kiosks there. But you go in and you press the button and it gives you your fries and burger, whatever the case may be, in McDonald's. And suppose this leads to job losses for certain McDonald's employees. Suppose Netflix uh, put people out of work who used to work for Blockbuster. Suppose this drives down wages in various sectors of the economy. Uh, What do we do? Well, you don't ban kiosks. You don't ban Netflix. You say if people lose their jobs or see their wages drop as a result of these things, but on net, we think that these economic changes are are good for the economy because they make us more productive, they make goods and services more affordable, what do we do? Well, maybe you extend unemployment benefits to people who lost their job. Maybe you give wage subsidies to people who saw their wages drop. You don't ban the thing. You let the market work its magic. And on the margins, when particular people are harmed by that, you address the problem directly. So if wages drop, subsidize wages. If people lose employment, offer unemployment benefits, wage training, et cetera, et cetera. And this is how we tend to deal with these sorts of issues when we're not talking about immigration, when we're talking about something like outsourcing or automation. I don't really see a reason to treat immigration any differently.
0: Right. So like also what you're saying is that ultimately, if there is a role for the state to play when there are costs of immigration, it certainly isn't to ban immigration itself, which has benefits. It'd be to deal with things like, as you said, maybe do wage subsidies. I think as well in, in one of your essays uh, in a, a defense of open borders, you mentioned like retraining programs, for instance, for, for right. certain vocations. So So the idea is that the state isn't there to prevent the economic activity itself, but rather, if it does have a role, cushion a bit of the blow.
1: That, that's right. Like I said, let the, mar- the the market work its magic, the labor market work its magic. Let's drive down the costs of goods and services. Let's you know let people get employed in positions uh, that suit them. And it, it's not cost costless. So I think uh, advocates of open borders should accept that there are costs to this. But the argument is that the social benefits are much much higher than the costs, and we can compensate the people who suffer those costs, perhaps directly out of the games themselves. So if you think, look. I mean, according to the most optimistic projection, uh, a complete opening of the world's borders would result in a doubling of the world's GDP. Now, that, of course, would be a massive change, and that's not currently on the table. But it turns out that bringing in more immigrants tends to make receiving countries richer. So we say, OK, these countries become richer. And that actually would enable us to have more resources, say, to cushion the blow of domestic unemployment or something like
0: that. You asked me to keep you to task on that list of objections people might have, and there, there was one about culture. But before we get to that, you, yes, since you did yes. mention open borders advocates, I just wanted to say that. So you, you certainly would think that it's a tactical error for people to dress up the open border solution as all roses. Like you said, th- it's important for the people that are proponents of open borders to recognize the costs and talk about how to deal with them and not be scared of that conversation as opposed to trying to get that political wind to change the hearts and minds, right?
1: Right, exactly. And, and here's the thing. It's true of every policy. Right. Uh, So so I don't know of any policy that that is all roses. So the, the best we can do is it's really, really good for most people. The costs are tolerable and the costs are addressable. I think that's that's the best case scenario that we have for any policy. Right. And I think that's probably a pretty apt description of liberalized immigration policy.
0: And back to what I was saying before, you asked me to keep you a task on that list I originally just threw out there, yeah. that giant jumble. There was also the cultural objection. So the idea that, fine, Chris, we accept everything you just said, but what about the culture? People are gonna come here. If they come in droves, our culture will change. That That seems to be an objection in and of itself people have.
1: Right. So first, I'll give you my my response to the to the libertarians, the the very hardline libertarians who might be listening right now. I would say, uh, you cannot make that objection. As a very hardline libertarian, just because the things that libertarians want to see happen, uh, aside from you know set aside your views about immigration policy libertarians propose all sorts of really radical reforms. And I say that as a libertarian, I'm not uh, casting aspersions on that. But so think about the sort of policies that libertarians want. They want to legalize drugs. They want to legalize sex work. They want to deregulate labor markets. All of these things could have really radical changes uh, to a culture. And so my view is if you are advocating for a world in which, I don't know, you can get heroin off the shelf at 7-Eleven, maybe you have to show a driver's license, uh, but you can get heroin at 7-Eleven, shouldn't be too worried about the cultural effects of immigration. So that's just my my initial pitch to the radical libertarian. So maybe immigration will change culture, but so will lots of other things that, that you wanna do. Another empirical point is that uh, the, the, the sorts of cultural changes that might come about through immigration um, are often positive. So, I mean, just a very simple case. uh, I remember in Creative Destruction, uh, which is a book by the economist Tyler Cowen, he says, you know, if you think back to the 1950s in the United States, you go out to eat. There were maybe two types of restaurants or something like that if you lived in a really small town. Now you can live in a small town and you just have food from all over the world. So, like the 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 cultural impact of immigrants on the United States, I would say is typically a net good and a very large net good. So it's true that immigration could change the culture, but that is often and probably more often a positive thing than a negative thing. And the sorts of changes that you might find concerning, so for example, uh, it might be the case that just to have a liberal democratic culture most citizens have to buy into certain basic moral and political principles. So they have to buy into this idea of religious freedom, democratic equality, the rule of law, and so on. But the evidence indicates that immigrants are just as likely to buy into those principles as native-born Americans. Uh, They have similar feelings of pride. They actually commit crimes at a lower rate than native-born Americans. So I think the cultural changes that people worry about are, are just unfounded, so the ways in which it really matters that we have a kind of core liberal democratic culture are things that are sort of accommodating to, to um, immigrants. And, and Also, just an, a further note on this, there are lots of things we can do, even leaving aside the really radical libertarian stuff, there are lots of freedoms that we have that can change the culture. And we don't take the prospect of cultural change to give us reason to restrict those freedoms. So just take something like um, reading books or writing books or proselytizing your religion. Those sorts of freedoms can have a really radical change on a domestic culture. But if you say, look, people are allowed to uh, read the Communist Manifesto, they're allowed to write the Communist Manifesto, they're allowed to try to win converts to their religion. These things can have dramatic cultural impacts, but we don't take that fact alone to be a reason to restrict those freedom, freedoms. And so it's true, freedom of immigration could have a pretty significant cultural impact, but that doesn't differentiate it from other liberties that are pretty uncontroversial,
0: right? And you mentioned like cultural benefits before. I think food is actually a great example for that. Personally, as as a as a food lover, but I think as well, uh, cultural benefits are also like in in the larger sense. A culture can come with with certain customs and ways of doing things. This ties a bit more into the economic point, but I think that's also something that should be said as well. Like there's, it's not just what they do for themselves that they bring, but it could be also means and methods and and what have you when it comes to economic perspective as well. Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, and, and I think that there was actually—I'm um, sure I'm not getting the statistics quite right—but if you look at, you know, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies in the United States, there's just a, a huge number of, of immigrants on that list. Nobel Prize winners in the United States, many, many immigrants. So you're right. It's not just what you might narrowly think of as culture, but contributions to science, to the economy and so forth.
0: Right, exactly. And I think that's a great place to take a break. We're at that mark right now. You're on The Curious Task here. We're talking with Chris Freeman. We'll be back in a sec. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to CuriousTask at LiberalStudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Elizabeth Aragona, and Danny Leroy. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're here in The Curious Task. We're talking with Chris Freeman today. Chris, before the break, we were talking about the cultural impacts of immigration, and how, the, how they do affect a society. It's interesting, in your essays, uh, you, you do make mention many times that okay, fine, if you're worried about cultural uh, change and you're worried about the cultural impact of anything, it's not just immigration you have to worry about. If you're a, 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 quote, freedom lover, you you call yourself a classical liberal libertarian, you necessarily must be concerned about internal changes as well if you care about external changes. It doesn't seem like a lot of people actually make that match. They they seem to, sometimes people seem to think it's... uh, uh, you, you can reconcile the idea that you're against external change but for internal change, and that, that that's very interesting to me.
1: Yeah, and, and it, it's funny too be, because you'll often hear this kind of point being made in cases of movement between states within a nation. So you'll hear things like, I don't know, I'm, you know, you live in Arizona, and all of these Californians are moving because the taxes are so high, and they're coming to Arizona, and they're totally changing our culture. But nobody takes that to be a reason to build a wall between Arizona and California. And and you also hear that this is, I don't know to what extent people make this argument now, but you used to hear it. You're kind of hearing it a bit now with video games, but they'll talk about movies and video games and television shows having this terrible, corrupting influence on the youth. But that's like you said, that's internal cultural change. And so I don't really think there's a principal difference between cultural change that occurs uh, across national borders and, dem- and cultural change that occurs within, you know, internally, as you might say. And, and there's also, I mean, given that we live in a globalized world, even if you take movement of people out of the equation for a moment, that doesn't mean there's not movement of ideas and movement of culture across borders. You can watch foreign movies, read books written in other countries, see television made in other countries. So the idea that we ought to single out immigration as a particular problematic case of this phenomenon seems
0: wrong. Yeah. It's very interesting. You bring up like video games and movies. Cause you're right. That is coming back now. Apparently it's, it's at the time of this recording, yeah. it's literally this week. People are talking about how uh, video games may have contributed to, to violent acts. Like a mass shooting in the state for instance. Right. And, and you're, you're totally right. Uh, um, that uh, if people are against that sort of cultural change internally, maybe it's consistent that they're uh, against, like, immigration changing the culture. But, but certainly uh, I think it's definitely summed up best in the title of an essay you co-author, which is Liberalism or Immigration Restrictions, but not both. And I think that's a really good—like, you <laughs> right. can read the whole essay, but also the title gives a good indication of where the conclusion goes there, too. So I think that's a very interesting thing. Yeah,
1: so that that was a paper that I wrote with uh, Javier Hidalgo, who's a political philosopher at the University of Richmond. I can't remember which one of us came up with the title. Uh, I'll give him credit. I think maybe it's him. I'll give him credit for the title. But right, so basically our argument there is that the sorts of arguments that people give in favor of restricting— freedom of movement, in particular, the freedom of movement across borders, if they work, there would also be reasons to restrict other sorts of freedoms that that nobody wants to restrict. So things like freedom of speech, maybe certain democratic freedoms. So that's another way in which people can bring about internal institutional changes just by something like voting, reproductive rights. So that's a way of bringing more people into the country, producing people. Um, And so we argue that the standard sorts of arguments that people give against immigration freedom would be arguments against any sort of freedom. So you have this choice. You can either be a liberal, uh, and I just mean that in the sense of somebody who prioritizes liberty above other social concerns. It could be a libertarian or a classical liberal or a Rawlsian liberal. I put them all under that umbrella. You can either uh, stay in that group Or you have to justify or you have to accept the justifications for lots and lots of freedom restrictions. We don't really want to do that. We don't want to start messing with people's reproductive freedom or occupational freedom, democratic freedoms, things like that.
0: Right. Yeah. I guess like, I mean, you're a philosopher, so you can certainly tell me if, if I'm wrong here, but you end up in sort of like this paradox of principle, right? Where if you say that, you know, for instance, uh, you believe in once again, uh, cultural progress and change wherever the, the wind may blow and wherever the like, the quote market pushes that. Uh, but but you're, once again, you're against other people coming in and doing that. There's really at that point, no principle difference between someone on one side of the line or the other. Someone internally may make a movie or a video game that, that does influence people in, in your value judgment for the worse, but someone from another country can come in and also publish a book or make a video game or, or make a movie that does that as well. Right. So I guess I guess you're stuck with justifying why that person on the other side of the line is ultimately not allowed to do that versus the other person.
1: Right, exactly. And, and so I'm not sure if we give this specific example in the paper, but you could just imagine, say, a very charismatic preacher who's converting lots of people to a new religion, that would be an internal cultural change that might change the sort of moral and religious fabric of the country. But generally speaking, liberals don't think it would be appropriate to restrict their freedom of speech, their freedom to congregate, their freedom of religion. We don't even think it would be appropriate to try to sort of nudge them on the margins. So I think most people would say it would be inappropriate to say double the tax on their books. To try to discourage people from converting, so this freedom is something that we hold really, really sacred, and we're will and, and we're very hesitant to take any steps to restrict it. And so the the question is, why would that be different in the case of of immigrants? One thing that people say is that well, immigrants just have a have a different sort of relationship to say uh, the government of the United States than uh, natural born citizens do. So the United States government owes more. Uh, to natural-born American citizens than they do to foreigners. Now, even if that's the case, and I'm kind of skeptical about that, but I'll I'll set the skepticism to the side for a minute. Philosophers often distinguish between negative and positive duties. So a negative duty is basically a duty not to harm you or interfere interfere with you. So if I'm laying on my couch, I am honoring my negative duties towards you because I'm not interfering with you or harming you in any way positive duties require me to actually get up off the couch and help you do something. So if you have the positive duty to assistance and you're in trouble, I might have to get up off of my couch and come pick you up and rescue you from the emergency or something like that. Now, if you think that the United States government has special duties to its citizens that it doesn't have to foreigners, those are probably positive duties that you're thinking about. So you might think, the United States government has a duty to provide education to its citizens, but not to uh, the French or something like that. OK, maybe. Um, but it seems as though the United States government still has very strong negative duties to foreigners. So it can't be the case that you have the person from France, France, who's, uh, you know, stopping at LaGuardia Airport during a layover and then TSA agents just, um, you know, take a baton and hit him in the kneecaps or something like that. It would still be wrong for agents of the US government to do that because that person has the right not to be physically assaulted by agents of the US government. And I think a lot of people have this confusion when they're talking about immigration. The idea behind open borders is not that the United States is sort of giving something positive to immigrants by allowing them to come in. It's rather they're withdrawing these sort of artificial restrictions on immigrants' freedom of movement. So what I'm advocating for, essentially, is the U.S. government getting out of the way and respecting the negative uh, rights of immigrants to come into the United States without coercion. Now, there's the layer on top of it, which we discussed earlier, which is, okay, maybe the 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 government can't use coercive force to keep foreigners out of the United States then where are they entitled to in terms of things like welfare benefits and so on you know i can say uh, more about that uh, but the basic idea is that the freedom to move across the border is is a negative freedom the government is not giving you something by allowing you to do that the government is simply getting out of the way and not interfering with you uh, in a harmful fashion.
0: Right. And and as you mentioned in your essay, like it needs to be the internal principles have to be reconciled with the external principles if like ultimately immigration in another way is is a market, right? So if you want to start interfering with that, basically that might be my right to employ someone that's newly coming in, then you have to once again on principle grant that the government does have uh, its place in saying who I can hire or not, let's say. Right.
1: Exactly. And so, so you can construct parallel cases for domestic employment. So the, the worry I gave earlier is that you might have immigrants coming into a country like the United States directly entering labor market competitions with the poorest Americans, causing them unemployment, dropping down their wages. And this, this seems like a moral bad. This seems like something that we might have reason to prevent or ameliorate. But this still raises the question of even if it's something that the government ought to address, how should they address it? So in uh, one of the papers we give this case, I think this is the paper I wrote with uh, Javier Hidalgo, you could imagine domestic employment decisions, citizens exercising their rights of occupational freedom, causing the same effect. So suppose you have a bunch of uh, really well-off Microsoft employees who just get burned out. They say, I don't want to do this anymore. Here's what I want to do. I want to take a relaxing job as a barista and pour coffee. This is is the decision that, let's say, that many of them make spontaneously. Well, now you have a bunch of people who are in direct labor market competition with relatively poorly off Americans. Maybe you're going to drop down their wages. Maybe some of them will be unemployed as a result. The right way to address that is not to say, hey, look, if you're a Microsoft employee, you cannot quit your job and become a barista at Starbucks. Nobody would endorse a principle like that. It's completely illiberal. You might say, look, you can do it if you want. And if you lose your job because of this market competition, then again, we'll give you some unemployment benefits. We might make job retraining available. We might subsidize your your wages if you see the wages fall. But the same principle, like you said, has to hold within and without. the
0: border. Right. And, and an extension of that example as well is something that just occurred to me, too, is a lot of uh, folks that happen to be re- retirement age. Let's say they're in their 60s. They're not working their main job or what their main career was in their life. And they, they want to take a part time job just not to be bored and have something to do it like a McDonald's, let's say. And I mean, unless you're prepared to tell grandma, no, you don't get to go to work at McDonald's, uh, and actually <laughs> right. not just tell her, but use force somehow to make her not able to do so, then once again, how do we flip that over to someone who's who's a newcomer?
1: Right. Yeah. Oh. And and there, there are examples that could actually have, I mean, single individuals could have huge impact. So I right. don't know, Elon Musk or something uh, decides to retire tomorrow, and Tesla is in shambles as a result of that, who knows, something like that. Uh, that might be bad for the economy. That might hurt a lot of workers. But we say, look, I mean, that's his right of occupational freedom. It's his right to decide where he wants to work. Um, and if he decides he doesn't want to work at all, or maybe he quits and he goes, you know, he becomes the barista or something like that. That's, that's his right. The state should not stop him.
0: We mentioned open borders a few times in this conversation. And I definitely don't want to leave this episode without getting... Giving you a chance to define what you mean by that term because a lot of people uh, you that are proponents of open borders even even putting aside the opponents for a second proponents of open borders might have varying uh, definitions of what that exactly is. Uh, now opponents of open borders would say well. Chris just said open borders. He means we're going to get rid of all border controls just going to be people running over the border. Is that what you mean by border uh, open borders? I think it's good that we get on record here exactly what you mean by that term.
1: Yeah, so I would so a, a couple of things. So open borders is not the same thing as no borders. So different so you could have countries that share an open border but they remain distinct political entities. And so the example of Arizona and California would illustrate that. So Arizona and California are distinct political entities, but they share more or less an open border. So if you're in Arizona and you want to work in California, you want to buy a house in California, whatever, that's that's totally fine. Nobody's going to stop you. That is roughly what I mean by open borders. So it's not no borders. Uh, you can have countries remaining as politically distinct entities. Uh, the the idea behind open borders is just that there are very few restrictions on what disqualifies somebody from moving. So there might be reasons why people shouldn't be allowed to move across borders, but I actually don't think that has anything to do with a unique problem about immigration. It's just the case, there are some considerations that are so compelling, they can restrict somebody's freedom of movement. So for example, if you have somebody, this is such an outdated example, and I haven't updated it, but there was this movie in the 90s, I think it was called Outbreak. And it was some communicable disease where somebody got off an airplane, and if he coughed, then he would infect everybody around him, and it would spread rapidly, and it would kill millions of people. And I think they've made different movies that all have the same basic premise. And so you might ask, could you stop this person from moving wherever they want? I think the answer is yes. So if you have somebody who's has this deadly virus and is going to kill millions of people unless you quarantine them, um, you could probably quarantine them, even though it's a restriction on their freedom of movement. That has nothing to do with borders. It's just if you know somebody is going to kill lots of people, you could restrict their movement. So you could imagine an analogous case. uh, So you might stop uh, somebody from entering the country if you think that that would start a deadly epidemic. But again, if somebody is uh, leaving California and entering Arizona, and they're about to start a deadly epidemic in Arizona, you could probably keep them out as well. So it has nothing to do with movement of people across national borders. I think those sorts of cases are going to be extremely rare. Uh, Perhaps a more common case would be maybe wanted violent criminals. Uh, So that might be a legitimate reason for restricting a person's freedom of movement. But here again, that's not anything uh, morally special about the border. Uh, The police can stop a wanted criminal from moving domestically. So if somebody has a warrant out for their arrest because they're suspected of murdering someone, the police can stop that person, put handcuffs on them, and put them in a cell. So again, you can restrict people's freedom of movement if the reasons are sufficiently weighty. So maybe somebody who has a really serious communicable deadly disease ought not be permitted to move across the border. Perhaps a wanted violent criminal ought not to be allowed across the border. How exactly we institutionalize that in terms of checkpoints and patrols, I'll outsource that to the social scientists. But in terms of the moral principles that could justify restriction, I think those are the the
0: two main ones. So when it comes to your definition of open borders, you're not saying it's out of the question. I know there's a lot of nuances here, but you're saying it's not out of the question. There's a health check, a security check, whatever. But in and of itself, the principle of the border is not to stop the flow of people. That's what you mean by open borders.
1: Right. So there is a very strong presumption in favor of not stopping, not stopping people. And the sorts of reasons that would justify stopping people are reasons that apply to any case of movement, not just movement across borders. And and I should also say, we always have to worry about how the institutionalization of moral principles will actually play out in practice. So you could say, well, in an ideal world, we would have checkpoints like this and patrols like this, and they would respect people's freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I'm a skeptic about how well government actually works. So I would just say, the, the lighter hands that the government can use, the better. Uh, I, I like I said, I would hand off the question exactly of exactly how to institutionalize this to the social scientists. But I think the less opportunity we give government agents to abuse their power, the better. Right. Yeah.
0: And, and I'm glad you took me through that, and, and to those listening through that, because I think um, you know it's important that people, whether they're against the principle, the concept of open borders or not, that nobody creates a caricature or sort of a cartoon of what people mean like there's obviously a nuanced discussion here i'm sort of reminded of this commercial that played in ontario where um it's when basically the the liquor control board the discussion was that you know you can get your finally your, your liquor in corner stores and the a bunch of people that were against that ran this commercial where these these 5-year-old children went in and just were able to buy beer off the shelf and it's like like no, nobody wants that. <laughs> Maybe some do, right. but nobody does. And same thing here with you, right? You're not <laughs> saying that. Sure, just, you know, just like, let's all, like, you know, create the worst scenario possible in your head and you're good with it, with people giving everyone tuberculosis right. or something.
1: You could probably find somebody at the uh, Libertarian Party convention who advocates uh, letting five-year-olds buy liquor. Well, of sure. course, But yes. that's not the yeah, norm. Exactly. And, and also I would say, um, yeah, uh, just on that point, uh, my, my argument is is sort of an argument about symmetry. So like the reasons you would accept for limiting immigration freedom have to be reasons you would accept to restrict other freedoms, since we don't take those to justify other restrictions, don't take them to justify immigration restrictions. And so, right, I, I think you're right that a lot of opponents of open borders have this caricature where they say, that means no restriction on movement whatsoever. But that's not how we treat other rights. So if you say, I'm in favor of free trade, if somebody responded to that by saying, well, does that mean um, people in other countries can like, start importing chemical weapons or something at the United States? Like, Well, probably not. Uh, there are probably restrictions on that. Or you say, I'm in favor of the right of private property. You say, oh, okay, well, does that mean that you can build a, a nuclear bomb in your garage? Well, probably not. We can argue about where the cutoff is in all these cases, But the the big point is like there's a very strong presumption in favor of letting people move across borders or letting people trade across borders, letting them use their property as they see fit, whether that entitles them to build into their bomb, probably not. But those are those are marginal cases. You're 99% of the way there when you're already having that conversation. Right.
0: Yeah, like you know, just in the same way being a proponent of scientific progress and and testing and exploration doesn't mean you get to drop a nuke over a neighborhood, right? Like that's not what we <laughs> we don't want to test the effects of that, way. right? Right. During the break, we we quickly talked about uh, something I touched on briefly at the beginning which was uh, some people made the comparison between like a neighborhood association and a country, but, but you you did mention that you'd like to get into that a little further and I think it, it's great that we do. So, so a lot of people do consider the United States like a club with a, with memberships, right? That's what we were talking about. So the idea that, uh, you know, people in the United States, they're part of the club, they get to decide who is in and out of the club. And let, let's drill a little deeper onto why that that basic premise, in, in your view, is, is a fundamental error just from the get-go as to why the state isn't like a club.
1: Yes. So there are just a couple of initial reasons why I think those cases are disanalogous. So, for example, in clubs, you typically voluntarily sign up to be a member of a club. I never signed up to be a member of the club United States. I was essentially conscripted into the club at birth. Um, If I break the club's bylaws, I'm incarcerated. Uh, you know, I don't know if you join the boy Scouts or something like that and you break their rules, you're not going to be incarcerated as a result of that. Uh, the costs of leaving the the quote unquote club United States are extraordinarily high. So if I were to leave this club, this kind of goes to what we were talking about at the very beginning. I might lose contact with my family and my community. I might need to get a new job, learn a new language. The costs of exiting this club are very prohibitive in the way that exiting, a neighborhood association, for example, aren't quite as high. So I think all of these are reasons to be skeptical of the the club analogy or the club analogy. So if if you freely enter a club, and it's relatively easy for you to leave, that strikes me as plausible that that club can rest, you know restrict your freedom to do certain things uh, in a way that we wouldn't accept in the case of the United States government. So an example that I give in one of my papers is the New York Yankees. Or a club and they institute policies that we would not accept if they were instituted by the United States government. So as far as I know, this is still the case. You're not allowed to have facial hair if you're a member of the New York Yankees. You have to shave. I- I'm not quite sure I understand the, the logic of that rule. It strikes me as a very bad rule, but that's the rule. Now you might ask. Are the Yankees within their rights to impose that rule on their players? I think you'd say, yeah. I mean, you sign up to be a Yankee. If you don't want to be a Yankee, you can do something else. And so if if that's one of the terms of membership, then so be it. Now, if Donald Trump gave a national address and he said, no more beards for Americans, we would think this would be a wild abuse of his power. But if the United States really were like a club, like the New York Yankees, It would be something of a puzzle as to why he couldn't impose this rule. So for all just members of Club USA, in the way that Yankees are members of the Yankees club, why couldn't Trump dictate very draconian measures in the way that, I don't know, the Steinbrenners, if they're still running it, impose really draconian restrictions on Yankees? So the, the interesting thing to recognize about club membership is clubs don't just dictate who can and cannot be in the club. They can also dictate um, what sort of behavior is acceptable from members of the club in ways that we don't think the United States, United States government, for example, can dictate it. That's okay in the case of clubs, like I said, because you freely enter, the cost of leave, leaving tends to be pretty low. That's not the case when we're talking about living in a place like the US or Canada. So the government in those cases have to be a lot less restrictive in what they can demand of people
0: right and and I think another thing that's very interesting as you were talking through that it, it struck me that people also um, have a fundamental most people have a fundamentally different view of the way majorities work in a club versus a state so so for instance if uh, you, you know we're you and I are in a club together with a bunch of other people and they majority vote that we're not drinking lemonade on on Friday we're drinking orange juice instead we go ah well Shit, that's that's the way that right. goes, I guess. But uh, but but when a bunch of people say, "Guess what, guys? The majority voted taxes are going up threefold tomorrow." A lot of people say, "Hey, wait, that doesn't work like that." So already on different issues, right. people have a fundamentally different way they view how a state works in terms of voting and opinion and things like that versus a, a private association. That's right.
1: And the other interesting thing too about the club analogy is, if you break the rules, you can be expelled from a club. So the Yankees can cut you if you grow a beard, I guess. Um, And we think that that's totally permissible for the sorts of reasons I gave earlier, but we don't think it would be permissible for the United States to, for example, start deporting people, uh, ejecting them from the club if they didn't follow the relevant sorts of rules either.
0: Right, right. That's a very, that's a very interesting point. I guess I can't really think of anyone I've I've, uh, heard of that said we should just throw them out of the country. It's more like you go to jail or there's some sort of like, (laughs) you know, consequence.
1: And I think, though, that also illustrates the problem with this idea that, you know, you have love it or leave it. I mean, I don't know. There are lots of people born and bred in the United States who really don't like the United States. Um, and we say, OK, like that that does not uh, disqualify them from being a citizen. We don't think that that somehow degrades their status as a citizen. I mean, there you know, prior to 2016, I guess, uh, lots of Donald Trump supporters apparently thought America was not great. Because he had to make it great right. again. Do so You say prior to 2016, does that mean that uh, Donald Trump supporters should have left the country, that they were less than full citizens? I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I think, again, if we're taking this analogy between sort of uh, foreigners and citizens seriously, uh, we don't have like an, an ideological or a cultural litmus test for citizens. Citizens can believe anything they want. They can be communist. They could be fascist. They could be whatever. Uh, and we think they're still nevertheless full-fledged members of the club. As, as we should. And so I think we should apply the same standards when we're talking about foreigners.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and we've touched on it a few times in our conversation here together, but we haven't really stopped actually to actually talk about it a little more in depth. And one of those things was it, it's, it's the rights that people outside of the country have. Uh, if, if you are someone who considers themselves like liberal in the broader sense, then you believe that humans have, have inherent rights. So we, we spent a lot of time talking about how, oh yes, if, if you want to limit the right of this person to do that, then you have to accept on principle, uh, you know, in for instance, the government could limit that right for you as well, that that's a logically consistent thing. But on the other hand, uh, we've touched on it a few times, like I was saying that we're also talking about, uh, especially in your perspective, the fundamental rights that other people have, namely freedom of movement and freedom to determine their own destiny.
1: That's right. Uh, And so I should also say, sometimes people try to argue that there are morally relevant differences between foreigners and citizens that might entitle the state to treat them differently. Mm. So people will say things like, well, look, here's why there's a difference. Here's why you don't need to use the same standards. Citizens have contributed to the country in various ways. they paid taxes. They've voted. Um, you know, maybe they adhere to certain sorts of cultural norms. Foreigners ha- haven't done this, and therefore it's the case that the state can treat citizens and foreigners differently. The problem with that sort of argument is even if it worked on on sort of its own terms, which I don't think it does, is there will be plenty of citizens for whom that argument does not apply. So for example, I don't vote, uh, but I'm still a full-fledged member of Club America. Uh, Plenty of people don't pay taxes or they consume more in taxes than they pay in. They're still full-fledged American citizens. And so I think any attempt to try to explain why there's a principal difference between citizens and foreigners is going to fail. And moreover, to to your point, even those those sorts of considerations aren't going to justify violations of human rights. So take a citizen who, let's just say, has never earned enough money to pay income taxes. That still doesn't mean you can violate their basic human freedoms. That doesn't mean you can uh, imprison them simply for moving in spaces that you don't want them to move.
0: Right. And and in the, that, an extension to what you're saying there, too, is that if we really are concerned about people on welfare draining the system, well, then, once again, we can't logically restrict ourselves just to outsiders. Right. There's uh, nearly 350 million people in the States. I'm sure uh, the people have been there for many, many generations. You can find more than a few examples of people that are also somehow, quote, burdening the state if you want to go that right. far. So all everything we discussed today, uh, well a lot of it was all in the context of people who would consider themselves for instance generally liberal. so we're talking about how they have to look at consistencies and logic and things like that. But there are of course a lot of people who would in a genuine way say, well I'm, I don't believe that I'm not liberal in that sense. I don't view that. So like how do you propose to at least tactically discuss these sorts of things with people who might not view that some an outsider has the same inherent rights as an American? I mean I, I, I hesitate to say that, we do, you know, we want if we want to convince these people, they're just a lost cause. Obviously, you've dealt with this more more than I personally have. Uh, so, I, I'm just curious to know your perspective on that one.
1: Yeah. So, I'll preface this by saying I, I'm sort of a, a skeptic about how well rational argument persuades anyone in politics. Um, right. and, and that includes me. I think that this is true of everybody. So, I'm just increasingly convinced by all this evidence that. Uh, our, our political beliefs are not formed on the basis of good evidence and good arguments. They are formed on the basis of our like partisan affiliation, and we try to find ways to rationalize whatever our partisan team uh, is standing for. So we say, right now we're at a point in the United States where Team Republican stands for immigration restriction, Team Democrat stands for liberalized immigration. And I don't think they really reasoned their way into the, that conclusion. I think that uh, I, I think that's what the team has become. And so now, if you're a good member of Team Democrat, you're pro-open borders, which is good. I like that. I'm glad about that. If you're a, a good member of Team Republican, you're not in favor of open borders. It's not because you impartially assess the evidence and you came to the conclusion that this is the right way to do things. It's no, that's that's not what your your team does. It's kind of like how, uh, when you're the fan of a sports team and your sports team picks up a player from a rival team by a free agency. All of a sudden you love that person. It's not because the person has changed, it's just now they're on your team. And I think this is kind of how we think about politics. So that's my very depressing preface to what I'm about to say. Um, I mean, one thing I think that that might be marginally effective is just trying to to disabuse people of false beliefs about what immigrants are like and and what immigration is like. So it's just not the case that immigration causes uh, huge fiscal burdens, it's bad for the economy, uh, that it's going to radically change American culture for the worse. I just think empirically those those are not true. I think immigration is good for, for more or less everyone. I think it's good for receiving countries. I think it's good for immigrants. Um, I think it's good for people in immigrants' families who don't move with them. So immigrants might send remittances back home and help alleviate severe poverty. So I, I agree. I'm not sure that the philosophical argument is is going to move people, but I think maybe the best we can do is just show them that the sorts of fears they have are unfounded.
0: Right, and and maybe it's not, as you were saying, it's not specifically on the immigration issue itself, but maybe there's a hope with trying to convince people that just because your team is saying something doesn't necessarily mean it's right. As you said, people often base these biases off what they feel are, well, what they have as gut feelings, and then they look to justify those gut feelings often.
1: Yes, I th- that, that to me, is the the holy grail of rational discourse, if we can figure out a way to make that happen, of, of rational political discourse, I should say. So you see really interesting uh, studies about, say, the party's attitudes towards tariffs pre and post Trump, and you can imagine exactly how those go. So to me, yes, this this is the ultimate. If we can convince people to say, hey, look, not the end of the world if you bri- break ranks with your party. That's, a, that's OK. That's not going to kill you. Uh, might even be good for you so we can hold out hope that maybe maybe someday we can make
0: that happen and and as you're saying like uh, and I think you you actually said exactly this in one of your essays too that you know the costs of immigration are largely overgeneralized and ultimately over exaggerated before we can even begin to talk to people about what the actual costs are the the like you were saying that the team sort of play the over exaggerations and, and that kind of rhetoric needs to be moved aside so so we can seriously assess what the heck's going on uh, because whether you're for or against immigration then the I that's something that you prioritize is knowing what's actually going on. Yes, yes. So, Chris, we've talked about a lot here today. As we wind down here in our time, I always like to bring the episode into a full circle by saying this. Uh, If we can summarize it, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here today on whether or not people have the right to immigrate?
1: So I think people absolutely have the right uh, to move across national borders. I think this is good for recipient countries. I think it... um, makes the culture more dynamic. I think it makes the economy more dynamic. Uh, I think it reduces governmental interference in people's lives. But one thing I haven't even really touched on, but I I think it's a really important point, is that it's a humanitarian policy. So it is the best way that we know of to alleviate really severe poverty. So foreign aid generally does not have a successful track record. Humanitarian intervention of other kinds does not have a very uh, successful track record but enabling people to move across borders to places where their labor is more productive is the best thing we can do to make the world's poor richer. So even if you're unsure of my other philosophical arguments, I would really want to hammer that point home. If you care about the well-being of humans, of human beings, and you want to alleviate poverty, uh, open borders is probably the best way to accomplish that.
0: And then that right there also might, might appeal to people who who say they are concerned about these things but are still opposed to a form of open border. So that there's a shout out to you if you're listening to there on from that perspective. <laughs> um, Chris, th- thank you so much for chatting with us here today on the Curious Task. I thought that was great. Thank you. It's my pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.